everyone has an authentic and interesting story that we can all relate to. On Authentic Conversations with Stock and Hixie, our podcast gives these stories the space to be heard. Along the way, we will laugh, learn, and appreciate this interesting and crazy journey called life. Now, here are Stock and Hixie for the most authentic conversation you will hear today. Welcome to another episode of Authentic Conversations with Stock and Hixie. Stock, how are you? I'm doing good, man. I, you know, I just told you I was a little jacked. I've been been running around the state, but I'm doing well. All right, you're all dressed up. You got your suede's on. I um, see. Yeah, I'm wearing mean... suede today. I had we had uh, we had some corporate meetings in Richmond, and those went well. And I'm now back here in Charlottesville in the safe room of the podcast room, ready for a new podcast and great interview. Well, we've got a guest here today. That's uh, it's going to be a little bit of a long intro. Okay, so I want you to be patient. We've gone through this before. <laughs> I'll, I'll get to you, I promise. But but this gentleman deserves a a, a full intro. Excellent. Um, our our guest today is Clark Murphy. Uh, grew up in Alexandria. Graduated from the University of Virginia. Professionally, uh, he served as the CEO for Russell Reynolds for ten years, uh, and has kind of moved into a different role. He's written a book uh, on sustainable leadership, which we want to hear more about. Uh, came out a year ago. Uh, around uh he's got a podcast that we were just talking about so he's a real pro stock oh yeah you you know um it's a uh podcast called redefiners uh with a colleague at work and and talking about uh, management consulting and and leadership and sustainability um he let's see where are you still with me i am i am i am i am (laughs) he's an (laughs) avid uh competitive sailor and has some unbelievable stories about sailing um which we really are interested in hearing more about and stock this is this is a smart guy right i mean mm-hmm. do you, do you, mm-hmm. do you believe me when i say i, that? I do I we do. got judgment issues here now and do. do you know and do you know how i know he's a smart guy how do you know mm. because he, he said he married, wanted to do this podcast no because he married the lovely whitney andrews That's all right. right tommy you're good greatest Hixie. move of my life <laughs> see all the rest came from that, that uh, no question so that is the setup right there. They have three children grown and, uh, Clark, thank you so much for being here today. We're, we're really excited to talk to you. I'm pumped to be here. I'm surprised for our listeners. These guys are in bathing suits and no shirts on. So <laughs> I'm a little nervous, uh, what's going to happen next, but anyway, well, Clark, thank- when you look like I do in a bathing suit, you don't like to wear shirts. <laughs> That's, why okay? I'm nervous. That's why I'm nervous. That's why I told you, <laughs> I'm not sure what I got myself into here. They, they locked the door too. They <laughs> said it's podcast. Can't leave for an hour. Oh gosh. That's great. So good. Stocky? Yeah. Well, uh, really interesting. I don't, you know, there's so many places to start. Um, but, but, you know, first of all, I guess the first question I have is really for Hixie. Hixie, are you by any chance looking for a new job? Is this why you, <laughs> is this why you did this? Always. Always. Wouldn't Always. be the first person I can, t- trust me. <laughs> Always. Uh, um, well, let's start first with the book. Yeah. You recently had a book come out. Yep. yep. Um, uh, can you tell us a little bit about it? The premise of it sure sure sustainable leadership it's stories of ceos who had courage and grit to change the world um the short version is we did a, a paper with the united nations in 2020 about why certain leaders were succeeding in making profits and progress mm-hmm. on sustainability in sustainability, meaning not only environment, but also social issues. Exactly. And what I say is sustainability to me is the umbrella of oceans, 
or poverty or nutrition mm -hmm. or climate. It's not ESG, mm -hmm. which is a very thinly defined measurement in financial services that is vastly misused today. Mm -hmm. So sustainability, sustainability is an umbrella of the 17 development goals of the UN. Mm -hmm. And so we interviewed, um, short version, we interviewed 55 sustainable pioneers, India, Australia, Singapore, America, Europe, Brazil, and how did they make such progress around sustainability and maintain profitability? Mm -hmm. uh, that landed extremely well. We built a framework of 88% of, of those leaders spiked in a couple of different areas of, mm -hmm. of competencies of leadership. So we built a framework saying, listen, there are hundreds and hundreds of sustainable leaders, but we need tens of thousands. Mm -hmm. So how could you identify them sooner in your company, retain them and develop them so we can make progress faster? Interesting. So the book is, uh, is a very pragmatic how-to can-do. Mm -hmm. We asked another 42 CEOs after the first 55, what'd you do right? What'd you do wrong? What's your advice to an emerging leader or a first-time CEO mm -hmm. to embed sustainability in the culture and operations of your company? It's not science. It's not politics. It's just how do you improve your company and be a better leader mm -hmm. and make money? No, 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 no embarrassment. Make money. Right. And, to, and you made reference to identifying potential leaders to carry that mission, so to speak. I mean, drive profits for the company, but also from a sustainability standpoint. How do they identify them? Do they identify them by Myers-Briggs personality tests? They identify them by uh, job performance? What What are the yeah, things? That we built a four-point framework that says, uh, one is, is systems thinking, which is about complexity. How do you parse so much coming at you to focus on the important or the urgent mm -hmm. and delegate or ignore the rest? Um, uh, stakeholder inclusion, not about inclusion, saying, would you go to your biggest competitors and take the risk to do something good for the whole industry, mm -hmm. not competitive? So like Mayersk Shipping spent $2 billion co-developing a green engine. Mm -hmm. As, as Soren Scow, the CEO said, the engine doesn't give any competitive edge to any of us. So let's, let's do this together. Mm -hmm. um, the third is long-term thinking, which is obvious, but what if you're so focused on the really long term, which this is mm -hmm. 10, 15, 20, 30 years, right. everything that you did as a leader, the credit will come in six to 10 years mm -hmm. and you will never get paid for it. Yeah. Would you still do it versus annual performance? Mm -hmm. And the last is disruptive innovation. We all talk about innovation, but what if everything you held true as you tried to innovate something new failed, would you keep going? Mm -hmm. and the successful, sustainable leaders keep going. Mm -hmm. And we, we, there are tests for all of those four so that leaders can go find these people sooner. It, well, yeah, there is the perception out there that uh, profit-driven companies and sustainability practices, um, uh, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. 100%, I know. Yeah. 100%. And so um, it's nice to hear um, and I think uh, real world examples, uh, anybody in your book particularly stand out that you, that you wrote about that you thought, you know, this is a really great example. Yeah. I'll give you two real quick ones. One is Ilham Kadri runs a chemical business. Mm -hmm. Couldn't be uglier, uh, called Solvay chemicals based in Belgium. A and they, uh, went to the heart of their supply chain in, uh, 80% of one of the commodities they use the most and the whole industry does 
is in Rajasthan, India. It's a long story. I'll spare, it to spare you. Mm -hmm. But they worked with their competitors and their suppliers to create a more stable supply in India and brought 700 farmers together to work collaboratively. And they put apps in all their phones about rain and dryness and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So the point of it is they have a sustainable commodity that they can depend upon for probably 25 or 30 years, right. uh, which means they can plan budgetarily. And they left Rajasthan and the farmers better off than they sure. ever were before yeah. is the first one. The second one is, is strategy is great, but spontaneity is good too. Mm -hmm. So in a, in a kind of ugly part of Spain, just beyond the Madrid airport is a little industrial town and it's where the Mao or San Miguel brewery is. Mm -hmm. And across the street is a, is a glass manufacturer called Valaria. And Valaria makes the kind of cheap tableware by the tens of thousands for Europe. The factory uh, is open 40 weeks a year, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Okay. You need about a thousand degrees of heat to make glass mm -hmm. and all the heat goes straight up to two smokestacks. Okay, so that's a problem, whatever you think of it. Sure. So one day, true story, about four years ago, this female engineer comes out of the brewery and trivia for the day, it takes about 4.2 liters of water to make a liter of beer. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. Everybody's trying to reduce that. So this young engineer walks out. She looks at the smokestacks as she's walking to her car. And she goes, man, imagine if I took all that heat going mm -hmm. out of the stacks and used it for the energy of the brewery. Think of how much free money I'd have to focus on the water problem. Three years later, a lot of zoning permits, they have piped all the heat under wow. the highway into the brewery. Wow. And they put all the excess cash flow into their water use. Mm -hmm. That brewery is now at 3.1 liters and going south, but they made massive jumps because they had so much free cash flow. Right. Like, it's not a political statement sure. to, to improve the uses of water or power or food or nutrition or healthcare. But, you know, spontaneity is as important as anything else. Oh, yeah. That's fabulous. Clark, when did you get into uh, management consulting? You've been Russell yep. Reynolds the whole time? Uh, I, was a, I was a baby banker in New York for several years and then uh, was actually recruited by Russ to be his chief of staff in the firm 30 years ago. And then uh, I was in Frankfurt, Germany for a few years. And then I was in London for five years and then ran Latin America and then did some other things for the firm. But, but what, did it, what was the drive for you to make that move? Yeah. So one was to work with an entrepreneur, to be honest. It could have been any industry. Um, I, the banking world, I, I, I'm not quantitative by nature. So I went and worked on my biggest weakness and, and was cranking cash flows and spreadsheets for a bunch of years. Um, and I thought it was exciting to be in a global business with an entrepreneur, and, as it proved to be. Did the personality aspect of the business um, with the management search, you're, you know, not only are you dealing with a skill set, but the personality side and where they fit in the organization? It, it certainly played to my strengths then and now, yeah. no question. And the other is cycle time. You could work on a deal in the bank. I was in the middle market buyout group uh, for a year or so. Mm -hmm. My eldest brother's a litigator. His cases last two to four years. Mm -hmm. I'm a short cycle kind of guy. Maybe it's attention span. I don't know. But um, the search business is really about a 100-day cycle. Um, wow. And I kind of like that mm -hmm. aspect of it. And, and Was and, there a particular industry you focused yourself on? Yeah, or? I was in financial services in Frankfurt and London. And then, I got, you know, better to be lucky than smart sometimes, which I can prove, um, is the private equity world was just oh, coming wow. to London mm -hmm. in the 90s. And nobody in London actually knew what that meant. And I put my hand up and said, you know, why don't I help lead that? And then I 
later on in life back in New York, ended up running that business for the firm globally for a while. So, so, you know, timing is everything, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So then, so you've done that and then you've written your book mm -hmm. and one of the big things is your, your history and your recent success in, in sailing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Love to sail. Will you explain to everybody listening <laughs> the race that, that you do that's there off the coast of England and, yeah. and, and Southern Island goes around? Yeah. And yeah. So, so my father was a great sailor. I grew up sailing in Chesapeake Bay and then um, have spent my whole life racing sailboats. And our grown children, who are 22 to 26, started racing with me on this team when they were 14. They've all gone transatlantic, they've all done a bunch of stuff. Um, uh, so, the race we're talking about is the Fastnet race, which is the Fastnet and the Sydney Hobart are the two most iconic long ocean races. Uh, what does long mean? Long means 750 miles. Okay. Okay. So, so we've done seven transatlantics, which are 3,200 miles. Uh, this is 750 miles. You start in um, the Isle of Wight in a little town, kind of like Annapolis, Maryland, mm -hmm. called Cows. And then you come out of the Solent, which we'll come back to across the English Channel, across the Irish Sea, mm -hmm. around Fastnet Rock, back across the Irish Sea, across the Channel to Cherbourg, France. Yes. And that's relatively new, though, going to France, Yeah, right? Yeah, I'd moved from Plymouth, England, after 48 years to Cherbourg. Okay. And the, one of the reasons it's a tough race is that you have the North Sea, the English Channel, the Irish Sea, and the North Atlantic all converging in this zone. Mm -hmm. So weather historically can be, can be pretty rough. Um, we knew because now you can see weather patterns we knew before the race that it would be super ugly uh it was like and if you know uh, knots versus wind speed it's about 35 knots of wind it's about 42 miles an hour but more importantly if anyone sails who's listening it was wind against tide so the tide was coming into the solent mm -hmm. which is like a small river coming off an ocean and the wind was going the other way which creates standing waves in a lot of violent motion <laughs> And then in the Narrows, it pipes up to about 40 knots, about 50 miles an hour. And it was the largest start line in the history of ocean racing, 430 boats on the starting line. What does it take to qualify a boat to qualify? You have to have done a lot of distance sailing to have qualified for this one in okay. particular because there were so many boats. Sure. So both from a safety standpoint and experience, navigation, sail handling, a bunch of, bunch of stuff. So going back, you, you you grew up as a kid sailing on the Chesapeake, but yep. there's a big leap <laughs> <laughs> from sailing in the Chesapeake Bay, you know, yep. uh, to hey, I'm going to go transatlantic, right? right. And I'm going to start to compete, yep. right? Like so, how how does so that happen? so uh, little known footnote to the bio after virginia i actually raced professionally for two years ah okay uh and so i did a couple of transatlantics in the first year after graduating and raced in europe for two two seasons and raced ah. in the caribbean for a season and then and then when we eventually moved to england whitney and i moved to england uh i did a lot of the racing in the soul and the body water i just told you about mm -hmm. uh which is really tricky with a bunch of people with whom i still race today yeah. Now, when you say, when you say you did the racing, you were part of the crew. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. In that, in that, uh, I was, yeah. In that period. Yeah. And then I've skippered all these races in the last 15 who, who years. Who owns the boat? So two, two different ways. Uh, we race our own family boat, uh, yeah. as well. And then we get the real Grand Prix stuff. We'll charter a boat either for the season. So there's a series of races in 11, 15, 19, where there's a 600 mile race in the Caribbean, a 3,200 mile transatlantic. 
the 750 mile fast net and then what happened this last four days it just happened the end of the is the middle sea race in malta around the aeolian islands which is a 650 mile race just finished again violent weather yesterday and the day before just just a great race. one of the great probably the greatest visual race in the world wow wow and how big is the crew on on these races uh so th this the race we just did yeah. was 14 of us okay. uh so we had four murphys uh and and a gang of people as i said but that uh we've raced together for for over 20 years what is it about it that turns you on well you know i love the ocean i grew up my father was a great sailor and, and, and we sailed together a lot i love the ocean i love being outdoors i like competing um the places you can go on a sailboat mm -hmm. probably like hiking you know if you really go for it it's amazing what you see and you see it from the water yeah um and i think the challenge of mother nature again whether it's mountains uh, my wife's a great mountain woman uh or the ocean is astounding and the last bit is which will sound very cliche mm -hmm. just go with me you get on a boat with 14 people mm -hmm. and the people that i race with because we only literally honestly and truly no jerks in our boat mm -hmm. Nobody screams and shouts unless there's danger. Mm -hmm. um, you've never laughed so hard in your life. Good camaraderie. Never laughed so hard in your life. And I think the kids got on board and were like, they saw a part of dad they'd never seen before. Like, dad has taken a lot of you know what. Yeah. Um, like, dad's getting beaten on and he's laughing. <laughs> okay? uh, and, and they were like, I'm in. You know, people are like, why are your kids doing this? Because you basically, you're either freezing your buns off yeah. mm -hmm. yeah. this time we were freezing and soaking wet soaking soak, wet. soak 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 we had the mm -hmm. best foul weather here money can buy mm -hmm. and within an hour and a half we were soaked for the entire race because it was so violent weather and 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 back to this one race in the first 12 hours 110 boats dropped out wow uh 26 coast guard rescues oh my four dismastings and one boat sack like it was one it was insane one sack. it was a bad deal so and their kids are like we're getting pounded and they're like let's go let's go stock i'm gonna tell you right now i am way too soft for that stuff. <laughs> you're way too soft if i, I, I mean, look at water i get seasick <laughs> if i look at water I, mean, I like to get on the water i love the water and i've done say i've sailed as a as a just a person on the boat but i'm not <laughs> my brother is a, a is a an accomplished sailor but um he hasn't done that kind of stuff mm. But that does not sound fun at all. Well, we, we yeah. describe it as um, affectionately as um, moments of terror surrounded by hours of boredom. But so, you know, don't yeah. get too carried away. How cool is it? Your yeah. kids, though? Oh, my gosh. I mean, that is that's an, it's just awesome that they spend the time with you doing yeah. something like that. Yeah. But, but what, did, what did they have to do training? I mean, they have to train. So they, they all how do you train? Yeah, you're, do, you're doing other races and other boats and working your way up. So so the girls, when they were 14, did the first Newport Bermuda race. Um, which is, the, and they took a safety course just for ocean racing to qualify for that. You have to retake it as do I every five years. Yeah. And then they were on that race. And then, um, we did, uh, um, a thing called the block Island race, which is like a hundred miles mm -hmm. to qualify for that. Got and it. then this qualifies for the transatlantic. So it's time and, and mileage and Liam's first race was 14. He did the middle sea race with me. Um, so, so it's time and miles, yeah. time and miles. Yeah and um give us some examples of some weird stuff that happened during the middle of the you know huh. night and yeah yeah so so you know I, I always say to the our kids the test of someone on this boat is when it's pitch black it's three in the morning and something goes bang mm -hmm. how do they handle it okay and you might be in 40 degree temperature and big waves uh 
and when things go bang, they only go bang in the middle of the night, it seems to me. <laughs> so we've, we've, you know, ripped sails. We have hit whales twice in two different races. Uh, we've broken big major pieces of equipment. Um, uh, we had took on water at one point because something got clogged. It's a long story, but you know, things happen mm -hmm. and they happen every time. We say 90% of the race is before the starting line. It's about practicing and thinking through the eventualities because they will happen. Yeah. And the, the worst was Whitney, uh, everyone says to Whitney, how could you let Clark do this with kids? We race on great boats that are incredibly well-prepared with great people, great people. They're 50 times better than I am at doing this. Um, the only thing that ever worried me is that in the middle of the night, if you hit a container, you die. You die. You go down in two minutes in cold water, and there's mm. no coming back right. because the people below can't get up. Yeah. And so after the two whales, the, the third ocean race, it's 8.30 in the morning. We've been sailing in fog for five, four or five days. And all of a sudden, I see, I couldn't believe it for the third time, I see this whale breaching in front of us, about 100 yards in front of us. And I scream, whale, and I spin the wheel, and the boat, big boat, this was a really big boat, going sideways with a big spinnaker up. It's kind of skidding across the ocean like okay. on an ice. and um, as we pass it by about 10 feet to the left side, port side, it was a 40 foot steel container. Oh my. Oh really? Covered in barnacles. And it looked, because it was covered in barnacles, that's how old it was, probably 10 years old. And it was floating? It was floating. It, and so they're full of air, so they bob like a whale does and come up uh, and bob because they're, they're, yeah, they're airtight. Sure. And it'd been out there so long, it had barnacles. And it takes a long time for a barnacle to sure, go in sure. a steel container. So um, that was a, recalibration of the program <laughs> so so stuff happens yeah so yeah, yeah. i grew up in atlanta yeah okay and big sailing town atlanta absolutely Huge sailing you town. got it man on the edge they called me captain stock for a long time <laughs> but here's the deal growing up in atlanta you had captain ted there yeah right on and yes. talking about sustainability yep there you go. Talking about sailing America's Cup. Yep. Did you ever have the opportunity to meet him or sail against no, him? No, no. But one of the uh, one of the guys, a guy from Richmond, Reeves Potts, who now lives in New England, great friend of mine. Uh, he he raced with him in his America's Cup campaigns mm -hmm. and tells some of the greatest stories ever. Oh yeah, yeah. He, yeah I've heard some stories, and he, uh, but it made me think with the sustainability talk. Yeah. With what he's done, environment wise, world peace, yep. things of those natures, he would be another great he, example. He, I mean, well, he would. He sits in a tower of his own, I would yeah. say, but, but you know, what he thinks about land use, uh, and about circularity of resources, mm -hmm. uh, is tremendously impressive. That's incredible. Yeah. 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 I think he has the largest bison Correct. herd exactly. in the U S and yeah. I think he's the fourth largest landholder, but extremely dedicated to the environment. Yeah. 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 Lesson for all of us. He doesn't have to do that. He does it because he thinks it's the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. So that's your plug for Atlanta. You always have to get one in <laughs> every podcast. You've got to get some Atlanta thing in here. Authentic Conversations with Stock and Hixie is brought to you by AntiguaThreads.com. We've talked a little bit about the book and talked about your sailing career and uh, in, in your um, professional career. Tell us a little bit about your podcast. Oh, yeah, I'd love to. So it's called Redefiners. Mm -hmm. um, and we just got an award last week, a Webby, for the number three business interview podcast in America. Oh, wow. So we're very proud of that. Um, so out of curiosity, I think. Do we, we have any shot? <laughs> <laughs> you do. You do. Out of curiosity, we have 120 followers. Yeah, 121, actually. So <laughs> yours, how many, how many do you have following it? We have about uh, 30,000 
and we will have next month our millionth download. Your millionth, millionth download. download. We're nine hundred and eighty thousand or something. We're and not far behind. Yeah, you're right on it, man. <laughs> We're on it. Absolutely. All right, so tell keep, us about keep, it. You know, I'm going to start telling lies so more yeah, people right, listen. Right. So, so anyway, the concept was to um, invite leaders from all around the world mm -hmm. uh, who have redefined their company, uh, their industry, or maybe even their country in, in a couple of cases. So we have um, everyone from David Rubenstein talking about investing. Mm -hmm to Leslie Stahl talking about women in, in broadcast news, Stephanie Rule recently also uh, in, in cable, and then um, the CEO of Siemens, uh, mm -hmm. the German company that split into three, you know, a, a German iconic company that nobody in Germany wanted to see split, and the German CEO said, we have to do this, mm -hmm. and so what, that's a redefining moment, uh, to the, the uh, female prime minister of Australia who gave this also iconic, a spontaneous speech to the General Assembly that defined women leaders in government. Wait a second now. Uh, this sounds kind of like a B group of interviewees you have yeah. here. <laughs> Out of curiosity. Yeah. How do you get access to them to get onto well, your podcast? I would say many of not probably not the, well, not, not the government leaders are not, but uh, they are typically clients of ours, maybe a candidate on a, on a board search or something. I got it. So uh, we, we have had interactions some with connection. them some, somehow. But we also had Henry Timms, who's the head of Lincoln Center, who mm -hmm. created Giving Tuesday, which is after Black Friday, uh, that has gone global about people donating on Tuesday, the, the Tuesday after, uh, which has is, which is taken off, an, an amazing guy. Um, so a lot of people, we had Max Holbein from the, the head of the Metropolitan Museum of Art as well. Yeah, super fun. Super fun. Um, Do you, not that I should ask this, yeah. and I don't go man, go. on the spot. He's going to come out of Atlanta again. I can feel it coming. <laughs> <laughs> have you had, who have personally been your favorite? Um, boy, tough one. Um, probably there's a guy named Jim Snabe, who's the co-CEO of SAP, uh, who's now chairman of, of Alliance and, and Mayorsk, who who was so good, mm -hmm. we did we did two episodes. And what him. was so good? Uh, how he looked at leadership, mm -hmm. how he looked at making tough decisions, how he looked at change as a way of life in the world we're in today, mm -hmm. but acceptable, not some guru in the top of a mountain. Right. Uh, the other was um, uh, uh, the woman who was uh, at the World Bank and is now head of the um, uh, was it Nigerian finance minister oh, yeah. who was, uh, dealing with corruption in Nigeria of oil money. Mm -hmm. And uh, her mother was uh, 88 years old, was kidnapped and said, either you resign as finance minister of Nigeria or we're going to kill your mother. And her father said, your mother's had a great life. Don't leave the job. <laughs> okay? So I was like, you know, that's not really good for Thanksgiving. Right. So uh, anyway, Ooh, she thanks. stayed in the job and her mother escaped three weeks later. Uh, and it's still amazing. alive today at 92. 92. So some of them are human stories you don't even know about that, of course, come out as you sure. talk about things. Uh, are you doing once a week or once a month? We or? drop it uh, every two weeks. Every two weeks. Over uh, each season's about six months. And how long are they? They are. They're, they're 27 minutes. So we yeah. talk for an hour. We edit to 27 minutes. Yeah. And we yeah. do a little plug like you do. Okay. You exactly. Right. And out of curiosity, how much of with you talking to so many leaders and finding out you know what makes them successful how much of it is learned behavior and mm -hmm. how much of it just is natural intrinsic instincts that they have super great question so so 
and that matters a lot in our business. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are certain behavioral attributes of you today, kind of like talking about Atlanta every time. Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> um, I love it. That, 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 You're the best. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what did you say talking yeah, about? Hot Atlanta. Here we go. <laughs> Varsity Grill going now. There you so, go. So, uh, so unlike a stock price where past performance doesn't predict future performance, All right. past human behavior mm-hmm. as a mature adult always predicts future human behavior. Mm-hmm. You are who you are yep. at the core about how you'll make decisions in a crisis, uh, et cetera. But, but I'm a huge believer in what I call LQ, learning quotient, mm-hmm. that whether it's digital automation, sailing a boat, AI, your ability to learn, mm-hmm. and some people are better learners than other. And I think great organizations, great leaders, have very high LQs. We all heard about IQ as a kid. We learned mm-hmm. about EQ. And I think the thing in the world today is LQ. And, and if you're a great learner, um, you will continue to improve how you perform as a leader. Mm-hmm. But the fundamentally, if you do or don't think strategically, if you do or don't think long-term, is fully baked. Mm-hmm. But your ability to learn sure. beyond the attributes of who you are right. Are limitless about what, what kind of leader you can be. So, in the uh, what few leadership books I've read, or in the old days talking, you know, I heard you say today earlier that when you got out of college, one of the things that you weren't as proficient in was finance, and so mm-hmm. you really worked on that. But then I've read the theories that you really just should play to your strengths. Yep. Yep. What's what what what's the thought on that now? That rather than spend the time to try to make something that you really don't have. Uh, a skill set in that maybe it's not intrinsically easy for you. It's better to focus on what you're good at and make it great. Yeah. So Hixie, he is jacked up because he's asking all the good questions. Here. I know okay. he is. Watch out. That, Watch that's out. Why it's going to be a lone wolf podcast pretty soon. <laughs> so you got to get one ready. So, so uh, great, great question. Um, so I, it depends what you want to do. I think as a, as a general manager or a chief executive, you got to work on, your weaknesses as well. Okay. Okay. You pivot off your strengths, but ultimately I do believe you have to work on your weaknesses to go as senior as you'd like to as a leader. And yet mm-hmm. that might be in a nonprofit, in a church, in a company, in a university. It doesn't have to be for profit corporations. Mm-hmm. But I think great leaders I fundamentally believe great leaders have good self awareness. Mm-hmm. And fundamentally great leaders work on their weaknesses. At the very least, they augment them if they can mm-hmm. with the team around them. Got it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. We once interviewed, we do a lot of behavioral testing and we formed a company to do that. And um, we interviewed this person to be a CEO who is testing and he'd been, he'd been a, an operations, gone to sales and marketing, become the finance person and was up for CEO. Mm-hmm. And his testing showed this deeply insecure introvert uh, that did not line up with everything he'd done. So, and we'd rarely seen something that was so off the interview versus the testing. So we went back to the guy and we said, uh, and, he, and he, we really thought he should be the CEO except the testing. And we said, here's the results of your behavioral testing. Like, what's your take? He goes, oh, that is 100% me, 100%. He said, I'm petrified. He said, the only reason I went into sales and then head of sales and marketing was I knew I had to overcome it if I wanted to be a chief executive, mm-hmm. okay? He said, I woke up scared every day for four years in the sales and marketing job, but he was ambitious enough mm-hmm. and intelligent enough to, 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 to want to, it and right. to handle it. Yeah. 
which told us even more about his potential capability as a leader. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah. Do you have any other questions you want to suck up? For, uh, <laughs> after you've tried to embarrass me. In front of I do have one last question. Oh, please go right ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Right. I can tell you it's going to be a terrible question. I'm going to tell him it sucks. With yeah. it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. Leaders. Yeah. Entrepreneur. Yeah. True entrepreneurs versus uh, leadership in an established organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, big difference with the entrepreneur, and this is kind of a wacky one out there, mm. but I have read some research in regard to, um, I don't want to say full-blown mental illness, but potential mental mental where somebody might be ADHD or mm -hmm. somebody might mm -hmm. be, I don't know, bipolar or whatnot. And you, they say that sometimes those attributes can help on the entrepreneurial side. Yep. Do you see that? Ever? Yeah. So, so Tom, that was actually a pretty terrible question. Uh, <laughs> Thank so, you. so we're good here. So I'll I just, but we'll go with it just to make him feel good because he's tired. He's been traveling, Thank you. but, okay. but so, so I do think the attributes of an entrepreneur are typically different successful entrepreneur than a large scale mm. uh, general manager. Yeah. And you would most often see the handoff in the growth equity phase to, to another leader. I think professional management is an insulting phrase and, and we, we try not to use that, but, but I also two points there. I do think they're different people with different skill sets right. and the person who might lead fortune 50 X probably de facto has never been an entrepreneur. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Probably sure, de facto. Yeah. And they're great at Fortune 50X. Mm -hmm. uh, to your second point, you know, do I think there are gifted people who are either on the spectrum or yeah. their intelligence uh, so high makes them unusual in attribute? Mm -hmm. I think you see that a lot. You also see it in great musicians, great mathematicians, as well as people certainly in the tech world, mm -hmm. often in what I would call health tech and healthcare analytics and things like that. Um, because in the, you talk about people like Steve Jobs, that they're so brutally focused on what they're doing mm -hmm. that they become great at it or it flames out because they're so brutally focused, right? No one sticks with them. And, and, and I talk a lot today as we talk about leadership that in the world we grew up in, uh, Hicks is like 75 if y'all don't know it. Um, so in the world <laughs> we grew up in, Jack Welsh, et cetera, it was hierarchy. And the leader had all the decisions. Mm -hmm. Look down the table. Here's what we think. But Tom's going to make the decision. I say in today's world, both after the financial crisis, COVID, inflation, the next two generations walking with their feet so quickly mm -hmm. in, a, in a career, that today's great leaders have to create followership. Mm. So you're not, you're still making the decisions, but you have to have a level of empathy and communications skills to create followership, mm -hmm. not hierarchy. Right. Okay. And, and I like to say, if you don't create followership as a leader, you're just taking a walk alone. Interesting. You want it, you got to bring people with you. And I think that is, that is a fundamental shift in leadership that has happened over the past 10 or 12 years or so. Well, you know, Hixie, when you decided to do this podcast, you absolutely exhibited those. That's why I follow you. There you go. Yeah, when Clark was talking, I was thinking about that. Say, <laughs> <laughs> so that's me, man. <laughs> Clark, when I, when I was, uh, seriously, when I was doing some research yeah. on you, I saw a quote uh, about private companies versus public companies. Mm -hmm. 
and I, I don't I don't want to recite it because I'll, mm. I'll mess it up. But you, you were you were talking about the public companies being so focused on quarterly. Yeah. Can you talk more about yeah. that? Because I think it's a I think it's a it's a it's a great uh, topic. But also, what do you do about it? Mm. So so there are more privately backed mid cap and large cap companies in the world today than publicly owned companies. Right. Okay. That's a fact. And I think the uh, flexibility to think longer term and a capital structure to perform longer term uh, is the reason we've seen that shift. And I think both family-owned businesses, multi-generation family businesses, and certainly whether it's private equity-backed or family-backed, the ability to, to make change quickly, I think they're outperforming mm -hmm. those of the public equity markets. Um, and on a risk-adjusted return basis, you can see that the private capital-backed are outperforming. So, you know, sense of urgency, capital structure, competitiveness, and I would say nimbleness, even multi-billion dollar private companies yeah. are, can often be much more nimble than the public company. And um, I think that's a great concern. Uh, when I talk about sustainability, I mentioned I speak a lot to boards all around the world now off the back of sustainability about what does it mean to be a governor and what's the role of the board member versus the management team around sustainability. And, uh, uh, and, and my reflection is that I call it a barbell, that one side is the institutional shareholders who will more highly value the company. The other end of the barbell is the consumer who wants a sustainable product or service and employees who will walk if they don't believe in the company. I say it at the end of the talk, I say, listen, one, one word of warning. Eight of the 11 largest private equity firms in the world have heads of sustainability in the last three years. Not a single press release. Hmm. Nothing. Hmm. Because they're improving the supply chain, the use of materials, uses of commodities, retaining great people. And they're probably going to get an extra turn on the valuation when they sell it in four to eight years, because it's the nature of what they're doing, mm -hmm. right, right. than the public, public companies are. And I think it is a major wake-up call coming down the pike. Interesting. Yeah. Are, are there any public companies out there that you're aware of um, that that don't focus on so much of the earnings call? And you know, the CEO says, "Look, guys, you know, we, we're thinking five years down the road, a year, whatever it is, ten years down the road. We're not going to get wrapped up in if the stock price goes down, the stock price goes down, because fundamentally we know where our plan is and we're executing our plan and it eventually will take us to where we get. yeah i mean I, I think there's lots of them and i think there's even uh there are many of them and it takes a lot of courage mm -hmm. to do that in yeah. today's world particularly today's today's yeah, world yeah, okay yeah, yeah, yeah. uh and you and and you have probably some percentage more of them in europe than you do in the u.s who have, you know, there's all this structural ownership where you have big cross Spain, the five major institutional investors own the, the, the IBEX 40. Mm -hmm. uh, the major institutional shareholders of France own the CAC 40. In Denmark, they're largely owned by foundations started over 100 years ago that really think long term. But equally, there's whether it's Heineken or PepsiCo under the new CEO Ramon LaGuerta or uh, uh, a number of other companies that I think we really do think long-term, but it takes guts. We like yeah. to talk about Coke in Atlanta. <laughs> We're going to reshoot this one. <laughs> oh, boy. Cancel this podcast. <laughs> By the way, he snuck Atlanta in for the fifth time. I know now. he did. He does it every 
stinking episode. <laughs> All right, Stock, back to you. You got another question? Okay, Delta, Ed Bastian yeah. is that person. Okay. Just to make you feel better Very about Atlanta-based like companies. That was a okay? good pull. Okay. That was a good right. pull right there. <laughs> I knew we'd get back to it. <laughs> oh, boy, that is really, really good. Um, uh, so I have a, a back yeah. to sailing. Yes. Back to sailing. So what's next? <laughs> what, 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 and and so, what's next and, and what's the ultimate? like the adventure for Clark. Burton. So, so um, a lot of people have asked that question. Good question. Okay. He's got one now too. Okay. Um, so, uh, so Sydney Hobart, which is, which starts the day after Christmas. So the whole family we've talked about, like you got to commit to two weeks, which, yeah, yeah. which is good duty, obviously, but you got You're going down there. All our kids are working. Um, you go down there. Trick is um, they, bottom of the race coming in Tasmania, you turn the corner of the Bass Strait and every single, it's the bottom of the earth. It is the bottom of the earth. And every single day, without question, it's the conditions we had in the first 24 hours of the fast. Oh. And you know that going in. Okay? How long, how many days? That would, that's a, that's a, that's a day at the end. It's a full 24 hours okay. pounding upwind to get to, um, uh, Hobart. And I'm superstitious. And to be honest, I have done all these races. We've broken a lot of pieces of equipment, but no one's ever been hurt ever. Mm -hmm. And my kids all want to do Sydney Hobart. And we just won our class in the fast net and we were second out of 430 in the race. So my older brothers who know me well said, you really want to do Sydney Hobart? <laughs> so that one's on hold for now, but we'll probably do Newport Bermuda again this uh, June. It's every two years. And okay. I hope we do that race 10 times. It's just a great place to start, great place to finish, cross the Gulf Stream, very challenging. Um, that's probably the next one. How many boats would be in Newport? To... Newport Bermuda is probably uh, 150 boats. Yeah. Yeah. And I know you came in second in your class. and First in class. Uh, first in guy. class, sorry. First in <laughs> class, second out of 432. Yeah. But are you, are you doing this, um, this competitive sailing for the – the uh the the win mm -hmm. or just no. the experience it's the, it's the journey and this probably yeah. we, we had second in the transatlantic one time we've had third in the another race you know so that's all good you know um but this this is you know this is a lifetime achievement there's no question and i don't know that we might see that again because we're amateurs seriously mm -hmm. the guy who got first and they normally get the first five the guy the boat caro who won all, all professional sailors except the owner at the wheel, and they ship the boat around the world. Mm -hmm. Oh wow! Okay, so you know, yeah, the Murphy family and a bunch of buddies. Uh, we do just to be fair. We do have a professional navigator, Mickey Broughton, who's the guy I've sailed with for thirty years. Just to be clear, we, he, he's he's a paid professional, but also part of our family. But um, but uh, it's about the journey. And you know, you're middle of the night, whether it's a storm and, or somebody, or something goes wrong and somebody makes a mistake and we're all pounce on them and make them feel terrible um, laughing. You know, it's just so much fun. Yeah. It's so much fun. So it's the journey. Yeah. That's awesome. Unbelievable. Well, what do you think, Doc? I mean, I'm impressed. I it's told you, impressive. I told you you were going to be impressed with Clark. It's very impressive. And, and by the way, I did all this research. By the way, Clark actually... Murphy doesn't exist. He's an actor hired by these two guys. <laughs> this is a complete fabrication. <laughs> April Fools came early this year. I did all this research. I sent him all this stuff on you. And of course, I, I don't think he reads any of it, and, but he did. 
He did read it. There you it. go. There you he go. did read it. Between he, meetings, I read it. I you know, say, you I were even, in the meeting and you, know you read what, it, I think, think personally. Even, <laughs> let me think. Let me think. I'll bet you the name of your sailboat was Wizard. <laughs> Am I correct? <laughs> no. Oh, what it was? Ah, what was it called? The fast net was called J Jo, J A J O. Oh, J Jo. Okay, okay. Uh, Sorry. See, and the, and, and our boat's called North Star. <laughs> got it. You got went it. too far. I yeah. did go. I you did know, go. Okay, too I think far. we have to edit the uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no editing, but Clark, thanks so much for your time. Really great to be here. Could you put your shirts on now? Yeah. <laughs> Are we good? We'll, we'll try. We'll, tr we'll try. So, uh, Hixie, I got a question for last question for Clark. Yes, uh, Clark, please. when do you think uh, Hixie and I are going to come up for your podcast? <laughs> you're, you're on next season. Close you're, to never. Got it. No, no, no. We're, we're going to come Be up good. and talk about our management uh, philosophy. Oh, yeah. No, you're yeah. going to talk about Atlanta, basically. <laughs> and I'm going to talk about you. There you go. All right, folks. Again, Clark, thanks. Thanks for your time, Stock. Absolutely. Thank you for your time. It's extremely interesting. The sailing, the the book, your podcast. Uh, I'm glad to meet you, and I'm looking forward to you being in Charlottesville full you time. You got it. Love it. Thank you. Authentic Conversations with Stock and Hixie is broadcast for the world from Charlottesville, Virginia, by Tom Hicks and Rob Stockhausen. Please like, follow, and share if you have enjoyed this conversation. Have an authentic day.